I meant to mention earlier, if you did not uh, re pick up the elements as you walked in, the, the uh, bread and the juice, um, please uh, go grab some now uh, and so that you can participate in the Lord's Supper. I also want you to notice all the little kids and all the big kids who are, are leaving uh, to head over across the hall to our children's church. Uh, we are in need of a few more uh, helpers. Um, so teenagers, if you have an interest in helping, adults, if you have an interest in helping, uh, we could use your help uh, during this time. Uh, what we're trying to do is establish uh, three teams. I want to thank uh, Candace for arranging. Uh, she really coordinated much of this, if not all of this. Um, we're trying to create three teams of adults and teenagers to minister to our kids. That means you'd have a month on and two months off. Uh, and um, I pray that you would consider uh, getting involved in that ministry. Okay. That's not good advertisement, if you can hear it. <laughs> I do like to have fun. And uh, let me just get to the right text here. All right. Um, we are, as I say almost every week, continuing our study of the book of Matthew, the king and his kingdom. And um, I'm enjoying this particular study. And so I'm going to jump right in because we're going to be dealing with a familiar topic. And I'm giving you a heads up right now. Take notice. I'm going to ask, if I remember, I'm going to ask for your participation. If you are quiet of speech, then you will have to exercise uh, vocal expression that maybe is not customary. If you're pretty well-spoken and people can hear you across the room, then feel free to speak up as you normally do. Uh, but I'm going to ask for you to actually identify some aspects of what we're going to talk about. Uh, the text brings up uh, three of them, um, uh, two specifically, but I, I think it's not exhaustive, and that's why I'm not going to ask you to maybe uh, express how you've seen what we're going to talk about lived out in your life or that you've heard lived out in the lives of others, okay? So last week we, uh, we finished with this, uh, this verse, Matthew five twenty, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. There were more than likely scribes and Pharisees sitting there listening to him. There were many others who are not religious leaders listening to him. And the thought going through the majority of people's minds is, this is now, you, Jesus, you had just set the bar way too high. I will never attain to the righteousness that you are establishing is necessary to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever had the bar set too high for you in some area of life? Uh, my sister actually did high jump in, in, in high school. I couldn't do it. I had the height. I didn't have the skill nor the strength. Uh, but I always enjoyed seeing her do the, how many of you are familiar with the Fosbury flop? All right, right? Back in the day, you used to always like jump over it. And then this guy, Fosbury, whatever, he jumped backwards. And that's the way you see almost everybody do it nowadays. And and I love the gracefulness as, as the people would approach this bar at varying heights and they would sail over the bar and as long as they didn't knock the bar off, it was a successful attempt and a successful jump and they would be able to jump at a higher level next time. When we talk about uh, this idea of setting a bar too high, it's the idea of we're going to knock it off every time, Jesus. You have just, if the scribes and Pharisees are the standard, we, we don't even think we can meet that standard, and you've just said we have to exceed their righteousness. It seemed like an impossible task. You may be sitting here this morning thinking the same thing. I have no right to be in this group of people. They're much holier than I am. I have, I have no right because of, of the, 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 the nature of my life, the, the things that I do, the things that I think. Even my mouth exposes the fact that I'm not walking close with God. And, and you might be here today and you're just saying, I'm not worthy. You understand how people might feel when Jesus established this particular truth. 
But I'm here to say that the gospel is good news, right? Jesus doesn't set a bar that cannot be reached. But the only way this particular bar can be reached, to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, is to understand it's Christ's righteousness that exceeds it. And when Christ is in us, then we are able to exceed it as well because we are in Christ. We are empowered by Christ. By, we are redeemed. We are righteous. The, 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 the sin nature has been put to death in Christ. We still sin as believers, but our sin is forgiven past, present, and future. And when Jesus is talking about having this righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, he's pointing to himself. He's saying, you will never reach this on your own, but in me, you will reach it every time. Because there was a problem with the scribes and Pharisees, and he's going to point that problem out in just a moment. But he starts off by setting the bar. You must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I, I, I reworded it a little bit from last week, but, but this is the way, one of the last thoughts I concluded with. It's acts of genuine righteousness are motivated by a heart of faith in Jesus Christ. Acts of genuine righteousness. What, what do we mean by genuine versus non-genuine? Well, that is the nature of the scribes and Pharisees. They had, they had I, I highlighted, it's hard to see sometimes the black and the purple, but I highlighted the word acts as in actions, as in things that we do, that people do. And I highlighted it is motivated by a, a, a heart of faith. For us to truly attain a righteousness that, that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, our, our righteous acts have to be an outworking of our righteous heart. Our righteous acts are supposed to be based and motivated by our heart of faith in Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees, now granted, this is before the, the, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I understand that. But Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy because they thought they were reaching the bar. And he's saying, no, your acts of righteousness are not motivated by faith in God. Your acts of righteousness are just that. They're, they're acts, but there's no heart reality behind that. This is, this is Jesus calling them out, but this is Jesus calling them out and establishing the truth that all of Scripture has communicated. We just had the Ten Commandments read to us. I thought that would be a little refreshing for us to have the Ten Commandments. We're going to be focusing on just one of them today, but I will say all of them kind of set the bar, don't they? And these people, these scribes and Pharisees, thought they were keeping the law, all aspects of it, not just the ten, but all aspects of it. But when, when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, He didn't say, do it in act only, not in faith. Of course He meant do it genuinely, from a faithful heart, a faith that says, I am so... Uh, thankful, God, that you have removed us from Egypt, that you have redeemed us from that slavery, that you have brought us through the water into this promised land, and, 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 and now we are receiving your law, and the law is good and right, and Jesus has already established the fact in the previous verses. Don't think that I've come to, to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. So Jesus is the example of every one of those Ten Commandments that we just read. But even Jesus summed it up and said, Love is the way that you fulfill the law. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The, this is the greatest commandment, love the Lord thy God. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the law. We'll talk more about how love fulfills the law in coming weeks, but this is just building off of last week to understand that Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy and the sin of the religious people of his day. As I stand before you now, I stand having looked in the mirror, and I'm asking you to look in the mirror yourself even as we, as we talk about these things. We're going to talk about a sin that is 
really one of those things that we probably live with day in and day out in some capacity. And my concern is it may be so familiar, you may just brush it off as, ah, no big deal. What sin am I talking about? It's a sin of anger. All right? And we're going we're to talk about it. But I, I found myself wondering, how do I draw people in? Well, let me, I, I try to draw you in by giving you the, the, set, the high bar, right? Please understand, you can cross that bar in Christ. It is not an obstacle for him. But the other aspect of what I was trying to draw you in is, how is your anger life? How is anger expressed in your life? How do you deal with anger when it comes from within? How do you deal with anger when it's, when it's uh, uh, sent your way? Someone else's anger when it's sent your way. How, how do we deal with this thing called anger? As we get into this text, I want you to understand, this is not a minor aspect of life. This is the first as we talk about the king entering his kingdom, as we talk about the king uh, speaking the kingdom truths and talking about the way a kingdom uh, ethic is supposed to be lived out, the very first thing he focuses on is anger. But let's look at the text. We're going to look at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Matthew 5, 21, 26. Let's read it in its, uh, in, in completely here. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Again, if you're familiar with uh, the gospel, uh, the gospel of Matthew, and you, you've read this before, it's, it's a familiar text, and, and it's a wonderful text, but this is the, the beginning of Jesus. He's given us the Beatitudes, these, these ways that we're supposed to uh, uh, live our life and that God has placed his approval on. Uh, and now we see, as we get into these, these verses, uh, we're going to consider that kingdom righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus has established is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Kingdom righteousness sees anger as a threat. I'm just going to pause there for a moment. Some of you in this room and watching online have anger as a daily part of your expression of life. And I can say that with utter confidence. Because I do a lot of counseling. There's anger between husband and wife. There's anger between parents and children and children and parents and children, sibling to sibling. There's anger in the workplace. Anger is so prevalent. It is portrayed in books and on movies. And, and, and we, we can even act it out in, in, in even as a, drum, as a drama within the church. We understand anger. But kingdom righteousness sees anger as a threat to something. And unless you are willing to accept that truth, that your expression of anger is a threat, unless you're willing to receive that as a possibility for your life, you're not going to listen to anything else. I have anger. I come across angry sometimes when I'm just very passionate, right? But that's passion confused as anger. But I have genuine anger. My anger came out abruptly one day as I pulled into, I pulled into a gas station at Fort Bragg, now called Fort Liberty. I told the Sunday school class, I'll get over that someday. It's called Fort Liberty now. But uh, I, I walked, I drove up, and because I knew the exit, I, if this is the pump, I kind of pulled at an angle so I'd be able to make the turn to get out in a hurry. And I got there, and, and my family's in the car, and, and uh, I got out, and I put the pump in, and, I, and all of a sudden I realized there's a not-in-service sign there that somehow escaped my notice. 
And I was like, oh, man, and I'm in a hurry. So I put the thing back in. I get back in the car. And, of course, normally I'm parked parallel to the island. I was parked in the angle. I threw that thing in reverse to go to the next one, and I hit one of those concrete poles. I got out of the car, and I saw that thing. And I, I kid you not, if I had hit the car, I'm thinking I could have broken the glass, right? But I, I just nicked it, you know. I just nicked it. And, and it hurt the tips of my fingers. I remember it like it was yesterday. My anger was there in a heartbeat. You know what got me, though? It was right on the other side of that glass were my children looking at me. And the big dent. That cost, cost me a lot of money to fix. But it's a life lesson. It's money well spent. I have anger issues from time to time, right? It comes up. It comes from within. Folks, listen, please don't deny your anger. We're going to talk about that in, in, in a little bit in a, in a different way. But kingdom righteousness sees anger as a threat. It's a threat to many things, but certainly a threat to community, a threat to relationship. Uh, but it's, it's a, it sees anger as a threat and confronts it by seeking reconciliation. I didn't highlight the word confront, but man, there are so many people that do not like confrontation. Oh, I'm sorry, in this room. There are people that say, no, I just don't like confrontation. I, I start to see it, I'm walking this way. I get it, totally understand it. There are times to confront, lovingly, firmly confront. And kingdom righteousness, the one that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, it sees anger as a threat. And kingdom righteousness says, because of who I am in Christ, I'm going to confront it by seeking reconciliation. That's what this whole text, I think, is trying to communicate. Verses 21 and 22, basically, uh, we've already read it, but we, we see a couple things. First of all, it says, You have heard that it was said, I touched on this a little bit last week in the previous text, but Jesus is saying to, to those listening, because again, they didn't have this, right? They didn't have this. It was an audible society, right? They, they had to hear the Word of God, and they, and they weren't all educated. Many of them probably couldn't read, so they had to depend upon scribes, right, to, to read them, people who are able to, and educated to read and, and explain what the Word of God means. He says, you have heard that it was said, because that's true. They, that's the way they learned. And then he goes on to verse 22 says, But I say to you, and we touched on this a little bit last week, but what I want us to understand here is people, he was saying, listen, I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. There were people that were going to accuse Jesus of, of doing away with the law, of changing the law. He says, no, 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 no. You've heard it one way. I am going to tell you something a little bit better. Well, I wanted to highlight these two words or these two sections here just so we can understand this. Jesus is exercising his kingdom authority. Anybody else were to say this and they, it would be ludicrous. But Jesus is exercising his rightful kingly authority in lives. He is not changing the law. He is revealing it. And so the thought I want to say, and, and, and as, we, as we deal with the sixth commandment, right? He's explaining the sixth commandment. I'm not showing it to you yet. I think you probably know because of what we've read. But he's, he's revealing it. He's explaining it with a new depth of understanding. The commandment is you shall not murder. We read it in Exodus 20. You shall not murder. Now, if, if that was the only thing we talked about today, and I just said, hey, listen, quick. This isn't the feedback, by the way. All right? That's later. Uh, if, you were to, if I were to say, hey, anybody guilty of murder in the room, based upon what we know, you shall not murder. Uh, of course, if you're a murderer, you're probably not going to raise your hand. But I think we could all say, who's ever murdered someone? Who's never committed murder? No, I, I mean it. Who's never committed murder? I'm taking a note. All right? No, we, we could all say, hey, that bar, <laughs> no problem. The bars that he's going to talk about in the subsequent weeks, right? A couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Joe will be dealing with the next section, dealing with adultery, you know? I mean, as, as we talk about these things, we can say, yeah, I'm good. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. And Jesus says, no, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, sorry, 
that's coming in the next slide. That's the command. What we see in these two verses is that anger is the root cause of murder. And we know this. We've heard this. I've counseled some of you. I've, I've been counseled. The idea that, that anger is, is the root of murder. Therefore, it will come under God's judgment. And Jesus is expressing the law. You shall not murder, right? Uh, not kill, by the way. It's murder. Uh, the idea of a forethought, a premeditated. You're going and, and you commit murder. And, and, uh, and it, you will receive the judgment of God. That's the road you're on when you express anger. And I will say it in an ungodly way. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But he says, whoever is angry shall be in danger of the judgment too. Are we talking about the same judgment? Well, I'll be honest with you, there's all kinds of, uh, of, of discussions about what kind of judgment is being talked about here. I think ultimately, as we talk about the, our, our day-to-day relatable life with one another, that we certainly understand the consequences of exercising anger in the wrong way in our relationships. But ultimately, everything we do is before God. So ultimately, the judgment that we're talking about, although this could be talking about just going to the local magistrate, uh, you know, getting a fine or whatever, ultimately, as we stand before God in his final judgment, right, for the unbeliever, the great white throne judgment, uh, that, that is, that is uh, certainly in play in this text. It's not necessarily the focal point. But Jesus is saying, whoever murders, we would say whoever murders, the law was if you, if you murdered someone, your life is forfeit. That's the law. And when David committed uh, murder, adultery, then murder, and he, he knew what the law was, he thought his life was forfeit, and God said, no, I'm going to forgive you. That's, that's grace. God not giving him, well, that's mercy and grace, right? Not giving him the consequences that he deserved, but actually forgiving him for the sin that he had committed. So when we see murder and anger in such close proximity, we have to take, attend, we have to take notice of it because we'll say we're not murderers, but I'm not alone. I know many of you, most of you would admit you have anger. And it's not an anger that pleases God. You're saying that you have an anger, and, and it's the kind of anger that Jesus is pointing out here. It's the kind of anger that is on the same spectrum as murder. Anger is the root of murder. And so we know murder is heinous and vile and sinful. Can I ask that we all have the perspective of anger is heinous and vile? Now, it says this, this idea of judgment. We're going to see this more in the next verse, but I, I want to just encourage you that um, what we're establishing here is just the relation between these two. But I don't have it on a slide, but I want to deal with the black words between angry and shall. It says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. With his brother, many people believe that this is talking about uh, believers. Uh, I, I think it's broader than that. I think we're talking about those within, this idea of brother is those within whatever community you're in, right? Whatever physical family, whatever community you're a part of, because these principles we're talking about and these commands that we're talking about do not stop at the line of ethnic Israel, right? This is, is, not, it is not talking about just Christians, it is saying, listen, I say to you, whoever's angry, if we, if we were to make it just Christians, oh, I can be angry with my lost neighbor? Oh, good. No, that's not going to bring God glory, and, and you're guilty, guilty of murder in, in that re, in regard. So I think this, his brother is a broader statement, but notice this. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause... Well, careful. Remember, I talked about a loophole. I think I, I think I mentioned a loophole last week. And I was saying, be careful of this loophole. You might be reading a different version today, and the words without a cause aren't even there. They're not in the ESV. They're not in the New American Standard. They're in the King James. They're in the New King James. Uh, and in one of the uh, uh, reference or, uh, Bible translations, they rate the confidence of, of, of the text, like the, the, the different statements. And, and this particular version who, that does that, very technical, it, it, it had a difficult time of discerning is without a cause, is that, 
Uh, is that part of the original? Was it added in, you know, a little bit later for clarification? Uh, it's re I really don't know. Some people put it in, some people don't. It, it, it's the same idea. But with it in the text, I will say this. There is a loophole that's possible. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, that means there is a cause that's out there that you can be angry with your brother. And uh, darn tootin', I know I have it. If I'm angry at somebody, I know I've got a cause. I've got a cause. Well, they disagree with me. I've got a cause. They, they, they hit my car when I, and, and didn't leave a note. Okay? Uh, I've got causes. So the problem is you can discern your cause based upon your life you know, experience. But I'm saying it's got to be a cause that will stand in the presence of God. If God were to say... No, that's a just cause. I'm angry over abortion. I'm angry over human trafficking. I'm angry over people who are uh, in, in, uh, getting people addicted to drugs without their knowledge, right? There's all kinds of things that we, can, we call that righteous anger. But that's not the anger that Jesus is talking about in this text. All right, so is all anger sin and therefore worthy of judgment? I would say no. But consider this. Here's a quote from one of the resources I studied. It's explaining the text. It says, Jesus is not saying that anger is never justified. Although most anger is in fact self-serving, there is a legitimate anger, but it is not hostile or unloving. So I wanted to, most anger is in fact self-serving. I think that's the anger Jesus is talking about, and I think that's the anger that grieves us on a daily basis or at least frequently in our life. It says there is legitimate anger. I didn't highlight it, but it is not hostile or unloving. We just finished the Beatitudes, right? And, then we're, and we're heading into uh, the, the sixth part of this uh, sermon is going to talk about love. And so, so we're in this context. And so, yes, there is a such thing as righteous anger. And I, and I think we've probably seen it and felt it. But notice this. It is never hostile or unloving. So there's a couple of things that we can bring to the table when we're evaluating our anger. And, and that is just going back for a second here. That is like, do, what kind of cause am I claiming? Will it stand up to the scrutiny of God? And then, and then next, am I doing it Self, with a self-serving, which is the, kind of the same thing I just said, but am I doing it in a hostile or unloving way? Consider those things. When we become angry, we should stop to evaluate our hearts. That's, that's the idea of when you realize, wait a minute, I don't think this is righteous anger I'm dealing with. Stop. Just stop right where you are. You're in the wrong. Don't make it worse. Put down the shovel. Stop digging the hole. Are there ways we can protect ourselves from getting angry? And I would have to say, yes, there are ways where we can protect ourselves. If there's that thing that you tend to get angry at, I'll, I'll say this. If you get angry when the Red Sox lose a game after scoring 12 points, and you just go into a tizzy and a rage because the other team got 13, right? Your anger's out of control. Can you protect yourself? Yeah, stop watching the Red Sox right? Go to bed, all right? That's humor. But here, Jewish teachers, uh, this comes from another Craig Keener, another uh, scholar. Jewish teachers, in fact, generally advocated this building a fence around the law, making it stricter to make sure one did not violate its intention accidentally. This is actually a practice we actually do, and I actually think part of this is, is okay. I, I, I think of the text in Proverbs, which basically tells the young man, if you know the, the, the woman who's going to entice you into her home, uh, the, then don't go down that road, right? Maybe Joe will hit on that text, but I'm just saying, listen, there are things that we can put on our life to prevent us from, from uh, going into a particular area of sin. But I want to, uh, I want to encourage you that uh, to build a fence around the law was something the scribes and Pharisees would do. But what they ended up doing was trusting in the fence and not obeying the law. So building a fence, if you think about it, are we able to build a fence around our heart? It's difficult. 
the outward things we're, we're good with, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. These scribes, these Pharisees, these hypocrites that he'll call them later. They had all these things in place and they were, they were following all their, all their laws to keep them from breaking God's law. And in the midst of obeying all that stuff, they forgot God's law and they were breaking it without loving others and, and without truly being on the inside righteous. So there are many forms of anger we must be aware of. And I'm going to ask you to consider some as we get, look at the next text. I'm going to ask you, there are forms of anger that we ought to be aware of. So be ready to respond. He goes on in the text and says, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty-headed, all right, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, which doesn't sound as bad as Raka, all right, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into all the, all the details of this, but I will say, whoever says to his brother, Raka, empty-headed, this is a verbal insult. And notice, it's said to a brother. Now, when you get to the word, you fool, it's actually the word, moron. And some of us use that word. I remember watching Bugs Bunny say that word as a kid. I remember, that's how I think I learned the word, right? And we, we throw it around there as a banter, as a joke or whatever. No, when, when this word was used in this society, it was the idea of calling someone unscrupulous, wicked, sinful. It is definitely a step above empty-headed. But neither of them are admirable. And, and, and in the first century, the difference between first century Jews and 21st century us is that 21st, first, first century Jews lived in a shame society. They're, these societies still exist today, where uh, uh, Asian countries are often talked about being uh, uh, shame. Uh, shame is a big deal in their society. You don't shame someone. You must save face. You must do these different things. And I may not get all my details right because I'm not from those uh, areas of the world, but I do understand this. When you shame someone... It's like drawing a line in the sand, and you're saying, you're picking a fight. We talk about, I use the word knucklehead to a parent of a, of a school child in, in, uh, in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, this kid had somehow survived our school with like six pages of demerits and had never gotten expelled. Ken, is that wrong? That's wrong. That's a form of Amen. All right. This guy, and I, we, we started realizing he always did just enough. And then and at a certain point, they kind of roll off and they kind of roll off. But when you print them all out, it was like six pages. And we're like, I called his parents in. My administrator wasn't there that day for whatever reason. I had to deliver the news that his, their child was now exiting our school. And, uh, and I used the word knucklehead because one of, the, one of our staff people used it all the time. And it seemed a little kinder than some of the other words I could have said. But it's kind of the idea of these words. I shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have said it. And they were offended by it. And I, I quickly backtracked and say, well, okay, I, I, I could tell you more, but it would have crossed the line. So, and, and then I would be the knucklehead. All right. So whoever says to his brother Raka, empty-headed, you know, Listen, we're not offended at this. We expect this in some circles. If you listen to, to uh, talk radio or any of those things, they're going to throw this stuff around, or late night tea, they're going to throw this stuff around, and we laugh. They weren't laughing in this. This is something that had to be dealt with. So when, when, when we see this, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, whether it be the local magistrate judgment or the ultimate judgment of God. Whoever says to his brother, empty head, you are also in danger of the council. That's the idea of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. It, this, this may be an escalation of things. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire? You mean my verbal slander of another person, my rude comment is worthy of hellfire? Well, when you consider that anger is the root of murder, and these are expressions of anger, you betcha. That's what Jesus is saying is that we have to be careful. So I'm asking you now, just for, the, for like 30 seconds, 
What other ways do we see in our society where we demonstrate anger towards another person or someone has expressed it to us? What are some of the other ways that, are, I mean, I don't think we can run around going, Raka, right? Or you fool, the way, I, the way it means here. What are some of the other ways? Anybody got any ideas? What do you got? Okay, so I see you, Tom, holding up your phone and saying, I believe the word would be social media. Look at that. My light, flashlight went on. All right. Social, yeah, light went on. Okay. Um, <laughs> social media beating up other teenagers, right? I mean, kids using social media to just destroy another person, if that's what you meant. All right. Thumbs up. Anything, anybody else? Disrespect. Disrespect. You know? You can get away with that nowadays. Uh, there was a time when I, when I taught bus kids, uh, bus children Sunday school at a church in Rhode Island. And, and they would come in, and honestly, they, just, they didn't know how to sit for church. And we, we were working with them. And I was a new believer and a new Sunday school teacher. And, and I struggled with all the disrespect. And I really did. I really struggled with it. And one day, this kid's disrespecting somebody else, and I was standing behind him. And I literally grabbed him by the shoulders, lifted him up out of his chair, and put him down in front of me, and turned him around. And his eyes were that big. And they were starting to get teary. I had freaked this kid out. I had scared him. I have no idea what his home life was. I have no idea. I touched a student. If you're a teacher here, you know you don't do that nowadays. You can't. Even if you're experiencing all kinds of disrespect, you can't do that. And I, I'm not talking about another life lesson. I'm full confessions here, right? I'm just telling you, never again. Never again. I scared that child, and I said, I apologized to him. I sat down. I gave him a hug, which you're not supposed to do either, but he hugged me back. And uh, and I let him go to his seat, and, and I learned the lesson that day, that day. I'm just saying, there are ways, folks, where if you think that you're good because you don't use the word raka or fool in the way it's intended here, don't think you're okay. You might manifest your anger in a way that's not covered under these specifics, but I think the message is clear, and it's ultimately going to ex receive the judgment of God. God judges this stuff. Now, I know for sinners, I mean, sinners saved by grace, right? For, for, for people who are, are believers, yes. Okay, obviously, we're not going to experience hellfire. We're not going to experience judgment. But, but, but please remember, that doesn't mean you get to treat it lightly. You ought to treat it with the utmost uh, seriousness, all right? As you get into, so this is uh, verses 21 and 22. Anger is the root cause of murder. Therefore, it will come under God's judgment, all right? But, uh, and, and this is another way of saying it. An angry heart is a murderous heart and therefore deserves a death row sentence. I think that pretty much sums that up. As we get into the next sections, we'll go through a bit quicker because I am like really out of time here. Uh, I'm not really, but we have to do the Lord's Supper and I don't want to rush that part. But hang in there with me. When anger, in verses 23 through 26, we see that when anger exists in a relationship, we are to seek reconciliation immediately immediately. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. Seeking reconciliation takes priority over other acts of worship. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper here in a minute. And the Lord's Supper, I will say, is directly tied to what's going on in these two verses. All right? Seeking reconciliation takes priority over other acts of worship. The, way I, the reason I said other is because I think if you're seeking recon, uh, reconciliation based upon the gospel being worked out in your life, that's an act of worship for you. Seeking reconciliation with someone is an act of worship, but it takes priority over other acts of worship. He says in verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, we don't have an altar, right? Uh, uh, the, we're supposed to climb up on an altar and, 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 and sacrifice our lives daily to the Lord, right? We're supposed to die daily in that sense. But when, when we, and back in that day, though, they actually had altars, and they were bringing animals. They were bringing different things that they would, they would sacrifice on these animals. He said, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What kind of offerings do we tend to make? Well, most of our offerings tend to be financial. 
And so I'll just use that as an illustration. I don't think, most of the commentators I read, they all used money. And I just think there's other things we bring as offerings for the Lord. Our time, uh, our resources other than money, um, uh, and, and those are probably the big ones right there, right? But if, if you're bringing your gift, and I want you to envision yourself bringing a gift to God. We ought to give gifts to God, right? We, we ought to worship Him. I want you to envision yourself bringing some sort of gift, whether it's financial or your time or, or a resource. And as you are lovingly bestowing this gift, saying, Lord, please receive this as an act of worship, you remember that someone, a brother or sister in Christ, and I'm saying I think it even goes beyond that, somebody has something against you. Right? This is... This is an interesting statement. There, there, remember that your brother has something against you. It's not saying, it's not that it excludes it, but it's specifically not saying that you remember you have something against someone else. It's saying when you remember that your brother has something against you. But let's just pause. I just want to say this real quickly. This is a, a real thing. This is a genuine thing they have against you. It actually stands the scrutiny of God. You've done something to harm them, hinder them, you've fraught, defrauded them or something, right? But it's genuine. You're in the wrong. That's what's being said here. And you remember that you did something wrong and your brother is angry at you. Lord, please receive... Wait a minute. I remember I did this and I've never made it right. It says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. It is seeking reconciliation takes priority over acts of worship. If we, when we come to the Lord's table today, and you're, if you're, you're getting ready, right? I'm getting ready to, oh, wait a minute. I've actually done something in the life of a brother and sister in Christ. They're not in the room. I have no opportunity to reconcile with them at this moment. Put it down. Don't worry about who sees it or what anybody says. You're obeying God, which is an act of worship. Seeking reconciliation takes priority over other acts of worship. So seek reconciliation. Make things right in the relationship. This may require extreme measures. Why do I say that? Well, if you go, I don't think I have the text here. No, I don't. If you go back in this text, notice it says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. The altar is in Jerusalem. Jesus is speaking to Galileans up at the, at the Sea of Galilee. He's saying, listen, if you're down in Israel, if, excuse me, if you're down in Jerusalem making your offering and you remember that you have something against your, someone has something against you, go make it right. Take the multiple day journey back up to Galilee. Make it right. Then make the multiple day journey back to Jerusalem to make your offering. Jesus is making a very powerful point. Do not treat anger lightly. When there is anger directed towards you that's justified, go make it right and reconcile. Because reconciliation takes priority over acts of worship. God doesn't want just the action. He wants the heart to be worshipful. In the last two verses, we see that seeking reconciliation avoids an escalation of negative consequences. And we'll just look at this quickly because it, it, it's, it's two examples of what this all is talking about. He says, listen, now let's move off to another illustration. Uh, picture yourself, agree with your adversary quickly. This is where there's a legitimate law problem, legal problem, right? You're in the wrong. You've offended someone. Someone's taking you to your court. He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge to hand over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. We, we understand the judicial and the, uh, and the police system, right? This is the way it works. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. He, it's, it's, now, granted, this is talk, it's using real-life situations to make a spiritual point. But, but he's saying, listen, whether it be someone that is angry at you or whether it's your adversary, listen, Seek reconciliation. Seek it immediately. It impacts the way you worship. Seek it immediately. It actually is the wise way to move forward because if you don't deal with it, anger has a nature of brewing and escalating 
to the point where you're thrown in prison. And honestly, if we were to, I say that, I'm always honest, and I know that that irritates me as much as it irritates you uh, when I say that. But when we look at this text, I want you to understand, there is a judgment coming for people who are outside of Christ. Many of them are angry at God. Many of them may be angry at you. I don't know. But as you look at this and apply it to your life, the message that Jesus is communicating is seek reconciliation. Seeking reconciliation avoids escalation of negative consequences, which, again, is just the sub-point of this. Kingdom righteousness, which is the righteousness we are supposed to manifest in our life, sees anger as a threat and confronts it by seeking reconciliation. I'm asking you to think about areas in your life where this might be true, and I'm asking you, please, talk to God about it. If anger has got such a hold in your life where you just don't know what to do, come talk to me. I'm a fellow anger person, but because uh, I think we all are. We all have it. But I'm saying, let's talk about it. Let's let the light of Scripture shine upon it. Let's figure out why the anger is there. You'd be amazed how anger issues are actually just an expression of something that happened long ago that you're not even thinking about. I've been down this road too many times to, to tell you uh, that, or I, that, that I can tell you that that is true, all right? Kingdom righteousness sees anger as a threat and confronts it by seeking reconciliation. So as we transition into the Lord's Supper, participating in the Lord's Supper is an act of worship, right? It's proclaiming one's faith in Jesus. That's what we do when we go to the Lord's Supper. So I'm asking you, please do not participate if you have not had a chance to reconcile with someone. Now, Grant, I want you to understand, it's not saying that just that they're upset at you, you can't participate. No, it's, it's where you know you're the offender and you need to make it right. It's not, you're not responsible for everybody's attitude towards you. I listened to one preacher who said the, the, the whole, there are people all over the globe offended by him and, and upset at him. He says, I can't make it right with all those people. They have their opinion. A person's opinion is a person's opinion. But when there's genuine conflict, genuine anger over real things, then this is saying, make it right and don't participate. So we're going to go into our text of 1 Corinthians 11, which is our traditional text to, to, to look at for the Lord's Supper. And it says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. There is the idea that when you come to the Lord's Supper, the outward expression of participating it is supposed to to resonate from the, the true faith that, you've, that you believe. If you have never come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, which, which just basically means that you understand you're a sinner consigned to hell. You're headed for hell as a sinner until you have Jesus in your life. Until you recognize that he died on that cross to pay for your sin, and you recognize that without Jesus' payment for my, for, for my son on the cross, I'd be going to hell. Without you knowing that, without you of coming to faith, that that's why he came to reconcile man to go back to God, to, to create a way of having right relationship, and you realize that your sin is an offense to God, it, it is, it is you've, con you, you've, you've, you've jumped and you've hit the bar every single time, and you've failed, that sin will receive God's judgment unless you come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus as, as a man, not just Jesus as a God, but Jesus as the God-man who came to this earth and died on that cross to pay the debt of sin. It says, listen, if, you're, if you participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you're going to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Don't do it. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. I will say a moment, uh, I will say a prayer just for a moment, because I've been challenging you to examine yourselves, all right? Uh, I, I asked you, I believe, to examine yourself in the family happenings that, that went out uh, on Friday uh, through this message. So listen, let's just take a moment and examine ourselves, because there's still time for God to bring up something in your life that would say, I should not participate. Or, and, and there's also still time because if there's something that, is, that comes up in your life and you can repent of it right here and now, repent of it during the prayer and then take, participate in the Lord's Supper. But if your repentance takes the form of reconciling with someone, wait.
until the next time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to examine ourselves. It is certainly, Father, a time of serious reflection. It ought to be, and it ought to be one that we uh, uh, engage in before this very moment. But I pray, Father, even at this very moment, if there is something that is going on in a person's life where they would say, no, I'm, I'm not ready to give up that particular sin. No, I'm not ready to reconcile with that particular person. Father, I pray that you would break that person's heart with your love and grace and mercy. How can they receive the mercy that you have bestowed upon all those who come to faith in Christ? How can they receive that mercy and not give that mercy to someone else? Blessed are the merciful because they are called to be active in mercy. Father, help us to be merciful, loving people as you are merciful and loving. And Father, give us the ability, for those of us who are struggling, even at this moment, with some, some darkness of life, some past indiscretion or offense or whatever might have taken place, Father, help us to overcome it in Christ. to repent of known sin and to commit to make things right with those in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would do your work even now. And so, Father, as we continue with the celebration, the practice, the remembrance of the Lord's Supper, I pray that it would be pleasing that every heart is doing this in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have examined ourselves. He says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I really do take that Lord's body as referencing us as the Lord's body. Because they were, they were drunkards. There were all kinds of things going on in the Corinthian church. He's saying, listen, you're not loving one another the way uh, the great commandment has told you to love people. He says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. There are consequences to doing the Lord's Supper wrong. But he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Remember, he was dead, he resurrected, he ascended, he is coming again. That's what we proclaim when we participate in the Lord's Supper. It is beautiful. So we are going to do like the disciples did that night. And Jesus, when they left uh, the upper room, they sang a song and then they departed. So we're going to sing a song. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. And uh, after that, I'll close us in a word of prayer. And then we'll continue on with our business meeting.